Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with you. Uh, and, uh, man, we had a great start to the day. Uh, the 9 o'clock was crazy. We had kids all over the place, and they were crying and stuff. And so hopefully, if you got a kid in here that cries, just know it's okay, all right? It's just like my house, all right? I grew up with a bunch of kids around, and we're gr- glad to, uh, to be able to be together as a family. So uh, uh, the other thing I want to say to you is just welcome. If you're a guest with us, first time here, man, so glad that you're uh, worshiping with us this Sunday. Uh, if it's your first time, we would love to get to know you a, bit, a little bit better. My name is Dan, and I'm the pastor, uh, and we got a great team here that uh, would love to get to know you, and uh, there's a welcome center right outside these doors if you're in the room with us, and they would uh, love to get to know you, answer any questions, and give you a free gift, and just a way our, say, uh, our way of saying thanks uh, for being here, and if you're with us online, uh, we're so grateful that you're worshiping with us, tuning in wherever you are, and joining in and singing, and opening God's Word with us, and we'd love to get connected with you as well. You can uh, drop something in the chat, and uh, our team will be there to kind of welcome you there as well and answer any questions you may have. Uh, a few things that I want to uh, get out of the gate uh, for you real quick, a couple of announcements that are important because we've got the church all together. The first is this. We've been talking about this thing called Saturate. Uh, Saturate is a community-wide movement of prayer, so we're joining with a bunch of other churches, and uh, we begin to give out packets uh, for that on January 10th, and we've been talking about it for a couple of months in preparation. We're going to pray through the month of February uh, together. We're not just praying for ourselves. Uh, we're actually praying over our community. Uh, We just want to stand in the gap uh, for what God wants to do in people's uh, lives and households. And we just feel like we're at a a juncture, a critical juncture uh, in our community just to say, hey, we're here to serve. And so we're asking God to give us a spirit of humility and love and that his justice would flow through our streets. Um, And so many of you have responded to that. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, the last count I had before I come up here was about 250 packets have been picked up. And that means that about 250 of you have already said, yes, I want to be a part of this movement of prayer through, uh, through the month of uh, February. And so that's a big deal because each name, every 250, there's 17 uh, households in Jonesboro you're going to be praying for. And so if you do the math, I think that's about 4,250 households that Journey alone is going to be praying for. And then across uh, the sea, we're, uh, sea of churches, we're going to be covering this entire city, every block, every household in prayer. And so if you're asking questions about that, you can still get involved. I think there's a handful of packets left at the coffee bar uh, out here. You can pick them up before you head out. And the other thing, if you've got questions about how to navigate that packet, I did a little video that we put out on social media and through the Journey Weekly uh, email this week. You can check out Instagram and Facebook. It's about four and a half minute video. It walks you through kind of what to do uh, with that if you're looking for a little bit of guidance. The other two things real quick, uh, we are also getting reconnected to Journey groups. Uh, Journey groups around here are a way for for you to move out of this space on Sunday because the church is not just coming to a service, but it's relationships and it's uh, building into one another's lives for the ups and the downs of life and then getting around God's word and asking uh, scripture to change us. And so if you're looking to get connected, that's a logical place for you to do that. And I know there's got to be a ton of questions with that. Uh, so no question is too weird. Uh, our team is outside. They'd love to answer the question. Or you can go to journeyjournalism.com slash groups and our groups team uh, would love to just walk with you personally and answer any personal questions you may have. Uh, you can get connected to one of those. And then the last thing, and then we're going to get into our passage for today, is this, is uh, we've been slowly building back into uh, offering Journey Kids on Sunday morning. Uh, We've been able to do that for a couple months now with preschool. We added Journey Kids, uh, grade school, elementary ages back uh, a few weeks ago as well. Uh, And so I I say all that to say this, is we've got a waiting list in our preschool. And so some of y'all may be in that situation where you're not able to get a spot uh, in preschool. We're doing our best uh, to build those teams because we want to make sure everything's safe 
everything's clean. Uh, and so we do have restrictions on number. But here's what I'll say is if you're interested in being a part of the solution for that and helping us serve other families uh, and go through the process that it takes to become be able to serve in one of those areas or explore that as an opportunity, you can go to journeyjournalsjabal.com slash serve uh, and just click that little tab on there or you can fill out one of the connection cards and our team will walk you through that process. Uh, at the pace that we can do that in a healthy way, we're going to continue to move forward uh, is what God tells us to do, but we're going to do that together. Uh, and so uh, those are a few things you need to know going forward. And today we're going to be in the fourth installment of our series called Begin Again. We're going to be in Luke chapter three. We've been in this passage uh, for three weeks. This is the fourth week we're going to be in there. So we're going to finish up Luke three today, verses 12 through 18. And uh, we're calling today, telling ourselves the truth about power. Uh, the idea of begin again is simply this. If you haven't been here, and the reason we're talking about truth and power today specifically is this, is that we believe that through Jesus, we all have the opportunity to begin again. That no matter where you are, what you've done, that right now, that God offers you the opportunity, the ability to start right where you are with what you have and to move forward in that. But it's going to involve something on your part. The thing it's going to involve in your part and my part to begin again in any area of our life is honest. We have to tell ourselves the truth about where we are. We have to tell ourselves the truth about where uh, we're going and where we've been. And we have to speak truth to one another and we have to speak truth to God. And when we do that, when we are able to articulate that, then God uh, begins to move in our lives and he begins to usher us forward to help us to begin again in areas of our life or in our relationship with God. And so we started really big picture and we said the first place that we've got to begin to tell ourselves the truth is just in the nature of spirituality itself. What are we trusting in? What do we believe? Uh, where are we at? Where are our doubts? What are our fears? All those type of things. We have to confront the truth in ourselves and speak honesty to ourselves so that we can move forward. And that naturally leads us to two specific areas. One we introduced last week. The other we're going to dig in today. Last week we said it's going to make sure that we tell the truth about our possessions. That part of our life, a big part of all of our life, uh, is our money and what we do with it and how things have a hold on us. And until we can tell ourselves the truth about that, then we can't really let hold, uh, let go of that, and it can't really let hold of us. Uh, and so we have to do that. But what we also led into from last week to this week is this, is that that truth about our possession is inextricably connected to our, our, our truth about power and relationships, uh, about how we interact with relationships. And so if you think about relationships, I got a little illustration. We'll kind of uh, maybe run through this uh, as we go through the day. Relationships are really a part of all of our lives, right? I mean, you're in here today and you've got different relationships in different areas of your life. And you've always had those. Uh, it started out with family relationships, either strained or unstrained. Uh, as you went uh, through life, you had school relationships. Maybe you're on a sports team or you were a, uh, in an extracurricular activity. Uh, it, it expanded out maybe to college or you got a job and it went into the employment career field. Uh, maybe a church relationships were a part of that. Uh, matter of fact, every area of our life, all the way up to uh, political relationships or national relationships or global relationships. Our, our lives are a series of relationships. And that's why when we talk about spirituality, we can't not talk about relationships. 
And I think probably what you've realized is what I've realized in my life is when we're talking about relationships, on some level, we're talking about the issue of power. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, when you have uh, relationships in your life, you, generally you start off, if, uh, uh, if you have any relationship, that you're starting off kind of on the bottom level of a relationship. You know, like where do I stand? Uh, you're kind of getting your feet wet with that relationship. Uh, as you go through life, it presents uh, opportunities and situations in your life where basically you're trying to move up in the relationship because most of the time in relationships, you're, you're asking the question, what's the nature of this relationship? Where do I stand? And what seems to be hardwired into all of us is this natural inclination in all of our relationship is to try to see where do we fall? Do we fall below a person or above a person? And that's a question that's probably playing in the background of mind. It's kind of like the background music of our lives. And so we do that in dating relationships. You're like, okay, well, uh, I'm trying to move up uh, in, in a relationship. We do that in jobs. We try to move up uh, in relationships. And what you begin to see in that, we do it in church as well. We begin to move up. Some of y'all are wondering how tall I'm going to go, right? How high I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to stop right here for the sake of all of you. And if I don't fall, it wouldn't be so bad. But here's the deal. When you're moving up in relationships, and if all these rungs on the ladder, what you realize is they're not just steps upward. They always involve people. They always involve people. Uh, and most of us, our, our lives and our relationships, as it relates to power, simply this, is we're all motivated intrinsically by self-advancement. I've got to move up. That's, it's kind of just hardwired into us. And the, the issue with that is, is that the farther you move up, you look down and you begin to judge yourself based on how many people are above you and how many people are below you. And so what that enacts in us is not just self-advancement, but it also awakens in us this aspect of self-preservation. And you see both those things working in our lives simultaneous, simultaneously all the time. I'm trying to advance myself, and if I get to any position of power in any area, I'm beginning to ask questions, how many people are below me? How many people are above me? And oftentimes in our life, we are trying to preserve our position or advance our position because we judge success and failure, value and identity based on how many people are below us. And if you can say, well, I've got more people below me than above me, then generally we feel like we've arrived or we're arriving or we're moving forward in our life. And that seems to be the nature of most relationships. But there's a problem with that. When relationships are fueled by self-advancement and self-preservation, what you begin to find is there's all kinds of discord there's all kinds of destruction. Because just talk about, again, dating relationship or marriage relationship. When you've got two people that are both simultaneously trying to move up the ladder of self-advancement and get to a position of self-preservation, when that becomes the sole focus of two individuals in a relationship, that becomes a very dysfunctional relationship. Uh, when that happens in churches, when people begin to say, hey, where, uh, where do I fall? Who gets to be on the top rung and who's on the bottom rung? Who gets to be in charge and who's left down here? Uh, that happens with pastors. It help, happens with uh, people that are just members and are attenders in churches. And every time that you see that happening, when there's a jockeying for position of self-advancement and self-preservation, 
then what always happens is disruption, discord, and destruction. It becomes a toxic and oftentimes traumatic environment. And so what that spills over to in our lives is we become uh, in inner turmoil and discontent with life. Our relationships begin to fracture and the very substance and systems and corporate nature of life, your communities, your, uh, uh, your teams, your, your classes, all those things that you're involved in, they begin to fracture because this cannot sustain this cannot sustain the type of environment and it can't build the type of environment that's conducive to wholeness and growth and thriving. But this is what the world is typically hardwired for. And so when you think about relationships, you have to think about this issue of power. You have to think about where you fall and how you approach power and, and the, the things that you're involved in, what kind of nature as it relates to power do they have? And that's exactly where uh, our passage leads us today. It leads us to this point of saying that all of our relationships in life are really reflections of our view of power and the nature and the characteristics of our life, what we experience in life and what we experience by nature around us in the world is the sum total of our reflection on what relationships and what power looks like. And God has created the church, created for us a different model, a different way to be, and he's placed us here with the ability to introduce to the world a different way to approach relationships and approach power. And that's exactly what he confronts at this last part in Luke chapter 3. Matter of fact, if we dig in for just a second, he's going to show that through the lens of two particular groups, a group of tax collectors and soldiers. And here's what I mean. Watch what happens in Luke chapter 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Uh, and he says this, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, just to kind of get the ball rolling, we've got two things highlighted here. We've got uh, task collectors and soldiers highlighted, and then we've got a question. The question is, what should we do? This is the question that was introduced last week. And the backdrop here is John, this guy named uh, that we typically call John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. He's at the banks of the Jordan River. He's gone down to baptize a group of people. They've been listening to him speak, and he's telling them that they can begin again. And that really had this, uh, this really powerful nationalistic overtones, uh, religious overtones, social uh, economic overtones. It had uh, political overtones. It had all kinds of things wrapped up into one because he was at the banks of the Jordan River and he said, hey, we as the people of God can start new. There's a new, uh, there's a new promised land in front of us. And as he does it, it moves, doesn't it, from this big picture of this big question of the crowd in general. And it's interesting that what Luke does is he begins to uh, isolate two specific groups. And he introduces them to asking the same question that the crowd in general asks. But it's interesting that what Luke does is he wants us to notice these two groups of people. He says they're tax collectors and they're soldiers there. And the reason that that's really important for us is because these were people that if you were listening to this in first century and they were reciting the story, or even if you were on the scene at, at the Jordan River that day and you looked around and you've got these tax collectors and these soldiers speaking up, it would have elicited a response 
from both the listeners that would have heard this story and the ones that were present that day. Because these were not neutral figures in the life of Israel. These were a group of people that everyone knew, and they weren't famous, they were infamous. And the reason that they were infamous is because their approach to power and the destruction and the trauma that their approach to power cause in everyone else's life around them. You see, when we think about tax collector, I mean, obviously our, our automatic connotation is the, uh, the IRS, right? We th- think of that in our context. But this is far worse than that. Uh, this was a group of people that basically were collecting a certain kind of taxes. Uh, you may know about the history of the Jewish people in the first century like this. Uh, they were underneath the thumb of Roman oppression. Uh, they were underneath Caesar's rule. And that meant that Caesar would excise taxes on uh, this occupied nation, these Jews that were there. And there were basically two types of taxes, two categories. There were direct taxes, and they had a Jewish council that would really man that and manage that uh, and employ that uh, on the people. But there was another set of taxes, and they were kind of variable taxes. They were head taxes and poll taxes and all these kind of things. Uh, and this group of people that were charged with the, uh, the collecting of all those taxes was a group of Jewish uh, people that were actually bidding for the rights to be able to take these taxes. They were basically, if you want to say it this way, they were basically abusive opportunists from among the Jewish people. They said, hey, here's my shot, here's my ability, and here's what, I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bid for the opportunity to collect these taxes on Rome. And the thing about Rome was, is they were pretty happy as long as they got theirs, and it created a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, variables for the people, though, because the, the people didn't know exactly what the taxes were going to be. So what the tax collectors would do, they would come to the people and they'd say, hey, I'm going to collect this tax. And then they would add, well, let me add a little bit on there for myself. And they began to line their pockets. And so there's two levels here of kind of hatred and bitterness toward the tax collectors. One is, well, first of all, they're just, you know, they're just turncoats, man. I mean, they're just aligning themselves with the people that are causing all this pain uh, in our lives to begin with. And we have no freedom because of them and all these things. And then they, on the other level, is it, it connected with them on a very personal level, their livelihood, feeding their family. And there was a lot of abuse that was going on. There was a, a whole lot of uh, opportunistic abuse that was happening economically, and it was really hurting the group of people uh, that were right on the banks of the Jordan that day. But it wasn't just them. There's a group of soldiers there, too. And now this is kind of the, uh, the, the strong arm of the Roman uh, government. And we're not sure, actually, if these are like Jewish soldiers that were really recruited and to put into place uh, by the government of Rome to kind of police things, or if they were Gentile or Roman soldiers. But here's the thing we do know is either way, these were people that were abusing their power. They were using their position and influence uh, to, again, line their own pockets, hurt and abuse people. And so at the banks of the river on the Jordan that day, when these tax collectors and these soldiers pop up on the scene, Luke and John want us to know something deep and meaningful about what it means to follow Jesus and what the gospel, actually the influence of the gospel can do. Because this is not the only time that Luke actually refers to tax collectors. And interestingly, he, he mentions about six times. And every sixth time that he uh, mentions them, every single time he mentions them, he mentions them in a positive light. Which would have been a really odd thing. 
And you can imagine, right, if somebody had hurt you, someone had abused you, to mention them in a positive light would have been a really tricky thing uh, for this. But there, you, you see a couple instances. Here's two quick hits, two quick examples of this in Luke's gospel alone. One of them was a guy named Levi. Levi in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, said this, that after Jesus went up and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he says to Levi, follow me. And Jesus says to him, uh, and Jesus said to him, and he said, Levi got up, left everything, and he followed him. And so what we see here is uh, the people that were on the banks of the river that day, this is not the, uh, the last time that this type of confrontation happens, that Jesus kind of picks up the baton later, and he's going to actually pursue people like this. He's going to go to people like, that have actual names, right, like Levi. But Levi wasn't just the only one. Uh, Jesus contacted lots of tax collectors. As a matter of fact, we know another one. He's pretty famous. You probably heard of this one. His name was Zacchaeus. The kind of the overview of his life happened in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now, Zacchaeus was unique in that he wasn't just a normal tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. Uh, every time I talk about Zacchaeus, the easiest way for me to communicate what he really was is he's kind of like a mob boss. I mean, this is Al Capone. This is John Gotti. This is the guy that's got a kind of a network. He has gone through the motion of self-advancement where he's moved up. He stepped on enough people where he's got uh, a whole network of people to s preserve his power. He's got minions that do his bidding. He's basically taken all the profit. He's detached himself, and he's hurting a ton of people. Everybody knew who Zacchaeus was. Everybody knew who Levi was. This guy was not famous. He was infamous. He was a chief tax collector. And so when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, he looks up and he says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. Now, in both these situations, what you have here, as it relates to Luke chapter 3, is you have Jesus pursuing these types of people. And I wanted to stop here before we get into the power aspect or, what, or whatnot, because I think this is an important message, because the way that Luke um, introduces these individuals to us is he says, he doesn't just say, hey, there were some tax collectors and soldiers there. He said, even tax collectors and soldiers. And that word even is really important because what this points us to is it points us to the one word that holds the whole gospel together, and it's the word grace. It's the word grace because what you have at the banks of the Jordan and what you have in Jesus pursuing people like Levi and Zacchaeus is he's sending a message, and the message is this, that anyone can begin again. Anyone can. And I, I say this on two fronts. The first front is some of you might be sitting here today and you might think, well, hey, I, um, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm disqualified. You're thinking back to the people that you've hurt, very real names, very real situations, real situations, uh, real failures on your part. And you might even come today and yeah, you can put the mask on and everything like that. But deep inside your own soul, you're wrestling and you're saying, well, maybe God can't ever fix me. Maybe I can't really begin again. And to you, I would say this. I would say that the gospel says that no matter what you've done or who you've hurt, if you will follow Jesus through the grace of God, he can change you and you can begin again. You can, you can actually start new. And God can begin to mend things in you so that you can mend things in the world around you. You can begin again. But some of you are not looking at yourself. You're looking at other people in your life. And this is what's hard for us. 
Because what was happening on the banks of the Jordan that day was it wasn't just everybody was looking at themselves. Sure, the soldiers and the uh, tax collectors were looking at themselves, but everyone else was looking at them too because that's the way relationships work. And they were looking at the tax collectors and soldiers, and they had already written them off. They had already said, well, there's no way those people can change. All the pain they've caused, all the hurt they've caused, they had already probably in their hearts written them off because of the damage that they've done, because of the trauma and the toxicity and the pain and the suffering, all the people that were left in the wake. This was a very real present thing in their life. But grace means, the gospel means, what Jesus is pr proposing to us, what John is announcing to us is that even tax collectors and even soldiers can be changed and begin again. But here's the thing about it. It always causes a scandal. Grace like this always causes a scandal. Matter of fact, if you follow those stories uh, of Levi and Zacchaeus, you can just see it really quick, um, the way that everybody reacted. In Luke 5, uh, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus. He threw a big party. And, uh, I mean, the type of parties tax collectors threw, it would have been a real party. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. He went out and invited all these other tax collectors. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. And so what happens is you've got a group of religious people in this particular scene, and you've got a group of people that are far from God and infamous, and Jesus is hanging out with them, and it is causing a scandal. Because typically what happens when grace arrives is everyone gets really uncomfortable. Everybody gets really uncomfortable. In an atmosphere of grace, there's always this, this tension of how far will grace push us to go? Uh, and on the banks of the Jordan, or whether it was in the banquet, at the party, at Levi's house, grace pushes to the fringes, pushes to the edges, and makes everybody that wants to be comfortable, uncomfortable. So they're asking a question. They're so uncomfortable, they're asking a question. They're complaining, and they complained to them, and they said this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, why would you do that? This doesn't look like the way church is supposed to look. This doesn't look like the way religion is supposed to look. Uh, all the good people are supposed to be with the good people, and all the bad people are supposed to be in another location. And watch what Jesus says to them. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, you've missed the whole understanding. Because you've got a group of people out here that are on this ladder of life, and they are trying to advance themselves and preserve their position, and they are causing all kinds of pain, and they are part of the broken nature of everything that's broken because of sin. And if I want to fix things, I think what Jesus was saying is, I'm not just going to hang out with a group of people that act like they don't have any problems. I'm going to go to the source of the problem, and I'm going to meet them exactly where they are because I can't get people off the ladder unless I go to where they are. And it happened in Levi's life, and it happened in Zacchaeus' life. And Zacchaeus, in chapter 19 of Luke, he came, comes down out of the tree, and he welcomed Jesus. And all the people saw this, and what did they do? It was scandalous. They began to mutter that he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. Same situation. So it was scandalous at the river. It was scandalous at Levi's house. And it was scandalous at Zacchaeus' house. But here's the thing we know about Jesus. Jesus came so that the gospel, everyone would have a chance to begin again. And not just an individual, but he wanted to fix the wake of destruction that was caused by the very oppression that they caused. And so he went to the source. 
So if you go back to Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, you'll see what the response was. Because some of us, we look at grace and we're like, oh, okay, that's just pie in the sky. That's letting people off the hook. But grace, here's the thing you have to know about grace. Grace, the reason we're so scared of it is we think it doesn't challenge us or move us forward. But true grace, like we see in this passage, actually challenges us at a deeper level that the law never could. The challenge that they got on the river that day, the response was, what should we do? Well, John was real explicit. He says, don't collect any more than you're required to. The soldier said, what should we do? And he says, stop extorting money and don't accuse people falsely. Stop collecting more than what you're entitled to. Stop using your position to advance your position. Stop using your position to preserve your position. Stop trying to line your pockets. Stop hurting people. And the same thing with the soldiers. The soldiers, uh, he says, don't extort them. That word extort actually means to shake violently. It means that they were doing very real harm to people. And if you read any Roman history if, uh, at all, and you see kind of the abuse that was going on in the culture there, uh, there was all kinds of rampant uh, sexual abuse, economic abuse. Uh, there was all types of uh, different types of hierarchies that had been instilled and, and put into place. And if you were on top, you basically had power. There was all kinds of oppression that was going on. And so in this situation, John just says it like it is. Hey, grace demands something of you. Grace actually challenges you. And this is not new information because here's the thing. is that every, They all knew that this is what was demanded of them. Uh, they knew Jewish law. They knew Jewish history. Uh, they knew what was, what was commanded. As a matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament... Uh, there's basically two groups of people that are continually referenced through wisdom literature. They're called the righteous and the wicked. Now, the righteous, uh, and they knew this, basically a definition of them uh, in the Old Testament would have been those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. See, we live in a self-advancement, self-preservation society. It's pretty normal for us from an individualistic Western mindset. But that was really a foreign concept to them because their identity was not just an individual identity. They saw themselves and their own identity through the lens of their community, uh, the network of their relationships, uh, predominantly their family or their nationality. And so there was a lot of commitment to this. And so uh, righteousness was basically, are you willing to disadvantage yourself to advantage for the advance of the entire community? Not self-advancement and not self-preservation, but the advancement of everyone around you so that the entity, the body, the family, they all win, even if you have to sacrifice for that. And if you follow the strain through the Old Testament, God's people were always called to righteousness. But he also put a category in there. You see this category brought up consistently called the wicked. Now, the wicked were those who are willing to disadvantage the community for the advantage of themselves. And that could have been uh, morally advantage themselves uh, to feed their own desires and lust, or it could be economic. And it was continually all those things. Uh, matter of fact, the, the places that you see uh, the, the people of God go the farthest off, uh, off the, uh, the path that God had for them and the identity they had for them is when they begin to abuse and, and exploit their workers, when they begin to harm people and hurt people. See, these are people that were willing to disadvantage the community. Why? So that they could advantage themselves. They all knew this. This was not 
a weird concept to them. It was not a new idea. What they were missing, though, was they were missing the power to actually do it. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, ushered in by John, when he arrives on the scene, he proposes a brand new power, a brand new way to do this, a brand new power. Matter of fact, there's plenty of places to look at it, but one of the most uh, clear is in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus calls his disciples together, and he says, You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, oh, that's the way the world works. You're moving up the ladder so that you can be in a position of power and authority. But watch what Jesus says. He says to his closest followers, not so with you. He gives them a brand new view of what power actually is. You instead, he would say, or he said, whoever instead wants to become great among you must be a servant. And then he goes on to say it like this, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even, if, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's, what, here's essentially what he's saying. We live in a world where everybody's want to be moving up for self-advancement and self-preservation. What happens when you do that is you leave people in your wake that you've hurt. They become rungs on the ladder for your own advancement. You begin to step on people, hurt people, and that's why there's so much pain in our world in so many situations. And he, he basically tells them there's a new way of looking at power. And embedded in that, he says that, matter of fact, if you want to be first then you've got to become slave at all. Now, who was first? Jesus was first, right? And so I'm not going to go up on the top of the ladder, but if you were on the top of the ladder, essentially what Jesus is saying to all his closest followers is, I want you to see a new way to look at power. Because most of the time, I mean, you see this abused in all kinds of situations. Um, Relationships become abusive when someone tries to move up all the time at the expense of someone else. Churches... I've seen pastors do it. The inclination is to say, hey, if I move, keep moving up, then I've got more people below me to command rather than people above me to serve. And so what does Jesus say? He says, my model is not moving up so that you have more people to command and have ex- exercise authority over. What I want you to do is the new view of power, which is simply to move down the ladder. If you want to be first, then you don't move up, you move down. Now, again, we've got warring things going on within us. Our flesh wants to pull us up, but through the power of the Spirit, God commands us to move down. And so he commands us and gives us a new way of looking at our relationships and the nature of every relationship we have. And you can evaluate your relationships based on on how they look. You can probably see yourself in any relationship you have in a visual like that. Like, where am I standing? Am I always trying to fight for position? In my, in my marriage, uh, in church, on my job, with my friends. And then you have to ask yourself the question, what would it look like if I would begin to move down the ladder? Well, you can see the effects of that, right? Let's, let's take it in a marriage. You know, if you've got two people that are trying to move up the ladder, you know, and they're continually battling for position, and, well, who's in charge? Well, who gets their way? Well, who gets to make, call the shots? If that's your approach to marriage then no one's ever really going to be in a, in, a, in a place of wholeness in the relationship. 
Uh, there's going to be a lot of fear. There's going to be a lot of doubt. There's going to be a lot of bitterness. There's going to be abuse. There's going to be all those type of things that begin to pop up because you're trying to fight for power and position. And that's a result of the fall, right? Um, that will continue to fight and jockey for position. But if you've got two people that are both moving down the ladder in a relationship like a marriage or a dating relationship, then what you begin to see is that everyone's elevated and wholeness and peace begin to reign in a relationship. And there's honesty and transparency and trust that's built. See, that's the difference. Now, when it happens in a church, when you've got people that are saying, well, who's in charge and who's not, who gets to be on top and who gets to call the shots, if that's the question that uh, the church is motivated by answering all the time, there's gonna be discord, there's gonna be friction, there's gonna be distractions, and there's gonna be destruction. People are gonna be hurt. It's gonna become a toxic and traumatic environment for lots of people. And the reason for that is that what, what happens is that's going against the grain of what Jesus taught. It's going against the grain of what we were created to be in the very beginning. And so the answer that was being provoked to the question, what should we do, was that you're gonna to have to change the way that you look at your position of power in relationships. You are not gonna to have to do it just for self-advancement anymore and self-preservation. You've got to do something completely different. You've got, to, you've got to move down the ladder. And moving down the ladder always has practical implications. It's not just an attitude. It actually means tangible things. Uh, in the case of John's message, if you just do a quick review, you can see it really explicitly. John's message was simply this. If you review back to Luke chapter three, the first thing was repent, right? Change the direction. You're going that way, go the other way. God wants you to live a completely different way in his kingdom. And the second application, or the first application of that repentance for the people was simply this, is that I want you to care for the poor in your midst. You're so consumed with your possessions for yourself and you've failed to become caretakers and caregivers to those around you. You said that all your stuff is for you. You've lived with the assumption that everything is for your own consumption. And so what is the natural outflow of repentance? Well, you care for the people that don't have. You take what you have and you share what you have. And then the third part of that is where we are today. Repentance means care for the poor, but it also means be honest and fair with your dealings with others. Be honoring, honest, and fair in your dealings with others. And this is what the nature of the kingdom of God looks like. Because what this does for us is this confronts for us the source uh, of our problem. You see, this whole way of life has a source. There's a reason that we are like this, all of us, that we're all trying to move up the ladder. And it's, it's alluded to at the last part of verse 14. Uh, matter of fact, if we throw it up there, you can see it highlighted at the very bottom here. It says that we're, his command was them, don't do all this stuff, be content with your pay. So what was their problem? This is kind of interesting. Discontentment was their problem. Discontentment is a powerful force. Because it says that I don't have enough, so I've got to take from you what you have. So I've got to take it from you. I've got to remove it from you. I've got to steal from you. I've got to rob from you. And when you're in a position of power, the more power you get, the more tempting it becomes to use your power for your own advancement. It builds on itself. You see, power, if, if not rightly understood at the bottom, by the time you get to the top 
of the advancement on the ladder, then you've got a whole lot of people to draw from and to steal from, to abuse and to hurt. And every time you've seen uh, destruction within churches and families and businesses, you can probably trace it back to individual discontentment, corporate discontentment, national discontentment, where we want to take from someone else in order to give to ourselves. And at the end of the day, people get hurt over and over and over again. And so what was John doing? He was going to the source. He says, hey, be content with your pay. Now, anybody tried to be content before? That's kind of one of those oxymoron things. It's like trying to be patient, you know? Like, how can you actually try to be patient? It's like it seems to work against itself to try to be content. Because it does go against the natural fleshly inclination of our hearts. And so what does, what does John have to do? What does Jesus have to do? Well, they have to introduce not just a new way, but they have to introduce a new source of power in order to be able to do that. And that's what you see reflected in the last part of this passage. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. They were like, hey man, is this the one that we've been waiting for? Uh, and John answers to them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, anybody know who he's talking about? Anybody? Class? Jesus, right? He's talking about Jesus. Luke tells this story, and it's really interesting because he tells the first three chapters, he does something that the other gospel writers don't do. He tells the story of John and Jesus kind of in parallel until we get to this point, and then they start to veer off, and the focus becomes on Jesus. John returns back into the story in Luke chapter 7 just for a brief thing, but it actually refocuses our attention on Jesus once again, because what's happening here is what John is saying is it's going to take more than an outside washing. It's going to take more than a religious act that something's going to have to come in, and there's going to have to be a new source of power to live a different way of life that God wants to invite us all into. But this was not a new concept either. See, nothing that you're seeing in the New Testament was introduced in the New Testament. It's always a continuation. Matter of fact, John being probably the last prophet before Jesus that we know of, he actually, he, he actually piggybacks on what all the other prophets have said. And there's all kinds of evidence for this, but one of the most explicit ways you can see it, one of the most explicit uh, moments you can see it was in the, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. He talked about this baptism and this, uh, this new power. This is the way that the prophet Ezekiel, a few hundred years before John, said it. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What John was picking up was what Ezekiel was putting down. He was saying that there's going to be an inward baptism. There's going to be a, a cleansing that happens when you come into contact with the true Messiah, with Jesus. And he's going to come in and he's going to clean your motivations. He's going to begin to purify your heart. And he's going to empower you to do what you could never do on your own. It's a new baptism. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That means whereas God is not just on the outside of you commanding you to do things, but God actually comes within you and empowers you to perform the very things that he's calling you to do. 
See, nobody naturally lays their life down for other people. That is something that it, it, it means to be the image of God because that's exactly what God did for us. And so the baptism is an inward baptism he's talking about, not just a religious act going through the Jordan. And so John wants them to know that. But then the other thing was that this is actually uh, is really important because this, in, in the Old Testament, only certain people could experience this closeness with God. And so it was very limited. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but with the New Testament, with Jesus arriving on the scene, and then the Holy Spirit now is available to everyone. And this is the great equalizer. This is where the whole thing becomes really cool and fun. Because there's another prophet uh, named Joel that actually gets referred to in the book of Acts. And this is what he said about this baptism. He said, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, the Spirit now is not just on a select few people. The Spirit now has been distributed evenly among men and women. I begin young and old. It begins to demolish and erase these hierarchical stratification structures that we all have in our society that we kind of live underneath. The gospel enters in and it begins to change things. It changes the way we see ourselves. And when we change the way we see ourselves, we begin to change the way we see other people. And it enables us to move down the ladder. Now, what happens, in effect, when everyone is moving down the ladder, this really cool thing happens, is what you end up doing is you end up taking the ladder, and there's no more ladder. Because when everyone has the Spirit, and everyone is following the Spirit, Everyone is trying to see how they can seek to serve rather than to see who's on top. And what John was saying is, if you have used your position of power for self-advancement and self-preservation, then what you've done is you've missed the understanding of what you were created to be and to do in the image of God. And it's, it's so stark that the way he ends it in Luke chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, is he says, "...the winnowing fork is in the hand to clear the, the threshing floor." And to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. He gives this final picture of, of uh, taking a, a winnowing fork, which is basically like a pitchfork, you know, stick it in the, in the grain. They would throw it up in the air. The wind would blow the chaff away. The heavy grain that they wanted to keep would fall to the, uh, the, the floor so that they could thresh it. And what he's saying is, this is what's happening right now. There's a division that's going on. There's a shaking out that's going on. There's two different ways to look at life. And if you look at life about your own self-advancement and self-preservation, rather than moving down the ladder through the power of the Spirit to lay your life down for other people, to see who you can serve rather than how you can advance, if you don't do that, if that's not your approach to life, then you're like the chaff in the wind they'll be blown away. Because what happens to that, the end result of that approach to life and relationships is always destruction. In the case of this, he paints a really drastic and stark picture of eternal destruction. But the destruction is not just out there. The destruction is felt right here. It's felt in relationships. It's felt in churches. It's felt in businesses. It's felt in our nation. 
Why? Because when we live out of self-advancement and self-preservation, rather than living the model of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, seek, uh, we cease to become what God has called us to become. The healing force, the outpost of the kingdom of God, the different way, the, world, the way the world was created to be. To usher in what the Jews called shalom, wholeness, peace, right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with ourselves and with creation. And this is good news because we don't have to live like we're all trying to climb the ladder. We can be content with what God has given us through the power of the Spirit. And so as we finish up today, there's probably all kinds of applications for us personally in the room because we all have different relationships. And what I would like for you to do is maybe just spend a second reflecting on your own position that you have right now. All right, nobody has exactly the relationships you have or the position you have. Um, I can't even really paint that picture because I don't know what everybody's is, but you know where you are. And you can start to ask yourself the question, ask God the question, God, how am I viewing my position right now? Where do I need to change to line up with your calling? How do I need to take what I have, take the position of power I have, and not use it for myself, but to see myself through your eyes so that I can lay my life down for other people? A new way, a new perspective, a new power. And would you just take those relationships right now and just offer that up to God and offer yourself up to God and say, God, empower me to live that way. And what you're asking of yourself, we also want to ask ourselves as a church. Because who we are as a people gathered will become the sum total of our own expressions and our own understandings of what this power motif looks like. And so would you now just pray for our church? Would you pray that we would have an accurate picture, a biblical picture of what this looks like? Father, we submit ourselves to you as individuals. Uh, as a church, God, we submit ourselves to you. We have so much growing to do individually. We have so much growing to do as a church together, as a corporate body together. And Lord, we want to, we want to be shaped and bend our lives around your gospel. We want to know what it looks like to go to the fringes, to the edge with scandalous grace to live with the challenge of that. And we want to embody what it looks like as individuals, but we want to embody that as a church. And there's places right now, perhaps, God, where you're calling us to change. Calling us to grow. And we know we're not finished on that journey, on that process. And so, God, we ask that right now you would convict us through your Holy Spirit. You begin to bring order and unity and understanding of what that means for us as individuals and as a community so that we can move into the reality of what it means to be an outpost of the kingdom of God, to present a different way of living that just stands out in stark contrast to the self-advancement and self-preservation that's all around us. And take us from this place also, God, so that we go back into our other relationships 
and we empower one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to live that type of life. So Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. We make ourselves submissive to you and ask for you to move. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's stand and sing. Let's finish out by singing the truth of the story of what God has done for us.